that. All right. Good morning, everybody. This is amazing. It really has been years in the making. And so I'm so thrilled to be here with you this morning. Um, I'm going to just jump right in because when I was talking to Pastor Bill about what to talk about today and we're just kind of throwing things around, he said, well, I know I want you to talk about how do you stir up your spirit to pray and worship when you just don't feel like? And I was like, that's a great question. Like, no pressure, huh? And so I started thinking about it. I started thinking, and, and what I realized is beyond um, practicals, I'm going to get into some practicals also today, but what I realized was that for me, the battle is first waged in my mind. And it's a battleground that the enemy has made a play for time and time again over the years. And so I'm going to start off by telling you a bit about me, if that's okay. Just for you to get to know me a little bit. Because yes, I have an accent. Just in case you were wondering. I said this on Friday, but it's like a good old-fashioned place, like biblical place, book of Acts kind of accent. Because I am from the island of Malta, which is the island where Paul was bitten by the snake and then he flings it into the fire and then the people are like, what is happening? And he was like, let me tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we are today. That is my home. Those are my people. Yes. And so I'm going to just... Um, give a bit of a background on me because the truth is posturing is the last thing I ever thought I'd be doing like truly the last thing um, I did an advanced honors bachelor of arts degree in art history when I was 20 I graduated when I was 20 and then I started my master's pretty much right after and at the same time I also did my apprenticeship and started working in art conservation and a restoration, which became my full-time job. So basically, I spent my days peering at 500-year-old paint layers or being trussed up in some scaffolding in a cathedral, and then my evenings in some dusty archive trying to find paintings that had been lost to this world. Very different from posturing. Um, my head of department was already planning my PhD, who was already planning what classes I would take over at the university, who was already planning what my topic of my PhD would be. My other professor was already planning that I was going to do another master's in art conservation so I could continue working on that full time while I was doing my other PhD in art history. It was a lot. There was a lot going on in that time. And so at 21, I had my entire life mapped out for me by people other than myself. And on paper, it was a dream. Truly, like school had always been my thing. It was my comfort zone, what I excelled at, what came naturally to me. And so on paper, this looked like the rest of my life. And people were so excited for me. It was all like, you made it. You made it. You must be so stoked. Like, this is it. This is the dream. You know, and people are just like, wow, you must be so excited. And as you see people's excitement for how excited you must be, you start to realize that you're not very excited at all. You know, and you're just like, I should be at your level of pumped for my life right now. Like, why am I just not? And I realized that I felt so deeply dissatisfied. I felt so empty. And there was this inner pining that I couldn't ignore. And that was the Holy Spirit nudging me that there was something more for me. That just because school came easy for me, it doesn't mean that it was what I was supposed to do. Because sometimes, just because something is a good thing doesn't mean it's the right thing, right? And so I shared this deep turmoil, because it honestly felt like deep turmoil. The school was everything I had done. Everything that I knew of myself was in school. And so I was sharing this deep turmoil that I was feeling with a friend who had crossed my path briefly 
a couple years before in Malta, who was from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Can I get an amen? Mm. It is so cold there right now. I am so happy that I am here. I'll give an amen to that. And so she invited me to take a time out from this over-analysis that I was putting myself through to try and take some time out, come to Saskatchewan, and just be able to be and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and to discern what was the source of this deep dissatisfaction. So here I was, the frozen north, June 2011, surrounded by the frozen chosen. That's like my favorite nickname for people of Saskatchewan, the frozen chosen. Like honestly, if we had a youth ministry at our church, that is what I would call it. And so here I am in Saskatchewan. And, and actually, I flew into Calgary, fun fact. And my friend drove to Calgary to pick me up from Saskatoon. And she said, okay, we just need to make a quick pit stop because there's a church being planted in Saskatoon right now. And they need me to grab some, some materials from the church that, that's planting to take it over to Saskatoon. And so I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. Like a pit stop at a church, I'm down. I love it. Love the Lord, love the Holy Spirit. Let's do this. Walk in to C3 Calgary West Love is Youth Service in 2011. And I'm struck Im immediately by how easily I kind of settled into that atmosphere. I was like, that's weird. I don't know any of these people. I've never been here. Why does this feel so right? Cut to me sitting in a pre-launch service at C3 Saskatoon in a very, very strong, silent monologue with the Holy Spirit about how could it be possible that a place I couldn't even pronounce was filling that deep yearning that I had been feeling. We were, we were having words. I was like, Look, what are you doing? Like, this, this can't be it. Like, really? I can't even pronounce it. I didn't, I was just coming here to take a time out, not for you to be like, and lo, this is your place. And so it was definitely a, a situation that, we were going, that was going on. I couldn't believe that this could be the place. And so one long immigration miracle, and three months later, I'm back in Saskatoon, seeing the launch of C3 Saskatoon and being literally kicked onto the stage. I always joke and say that Pastor Sam and Pastor Brock probably had somebody lying to them that I had way more experience than I had because they were literally like, you're leading worship, ha! And I was like, really? And then I'd be like, musicians in the room, I'd be like, I think I'll sing this song in C. And they'd be like, you're singing it in E, ha! So I was like, ooh, what is going on? And so I'm there, I'm in this church, I'm leading worship until my visa runs out. And then I find myself back at home, thinking that the return was going to be very swift, that I would get the go-ahead on my return visa, be golden, I would be back in Saskatoon. And what I found was a big, stinking, closed door, both physically and spiritually. Just felt like the door was closed. And so I cultivated what I like to call a VBA, a very bad attitude. And so I was in Malta, basically against my better judgment. I started teaching high school English to 16-year-old boys. Like, let that settle in. And so that was, I was just like literally planking. And my mom, my mom was the art teacher at the same school. And I would literally be face down crying on her desk. So she'd be crying, like, you can't do this to me. And I was like, I just don't. I can't. I just need to be lying face down on the desks crying right now. You need to give me that much. And so all of a sudden... That changes really quickly, and I find myself moving to London in 2013 to complete a master's degree in Christianity and the arts. And I kind of stumbled upon this course, and it just kind of filled all of those confusing 
moments that I had where I, I was trying to figure out how to reconcile my love for theology and my desire to be involved in ministry with this academic art history background that I had. And so this course just literally came to my attention because I googled Christianity and the arts and it was the first hit on Google. I'm not even joking. Like people who are trying to decide what to go to school for, I mean Google might be the way. So I find this degree and I find myself in London and so I'm learning theology and this is the ironic part because as I'm immersing myself in theology, I suffer a spiritual assault. And that's the only way that I can describe it. I was alone. I was so far from my support system, so far from my strong communities, both in Malta and in Saskatoon, in a place where it is objectively exceedingly difficult to build connection. The city of London is a very hard place to be. And not only that, I had a very, not just an atheist prof, an aggressively atheistic prof. Like there were three other people in the class besides me, and one of them had become an atheist because of that prof. Can you imagine? Like that was the environment I was in. And so all of a sudden, everything about my faith that fell into the mystery of faith part was just this yoke that was crushing me. Every difference between denominational theology was this massive pit that I found myself falling into. And the thing that kept me going was this journal where I would write and rewrite every moment, every truth that God had written across my life. That moment where before I was born, my grandfather was miraculously healed of blindness. That moment where I'm sitting in that service, that very first C3 Saskatoon service, having an angry argument with the Holy Spirit, and Pastor Sam, who's preaching, interrupts himself to say, somebody is calling somebody, God is calling somebody from outside of this nation into this church right now. He didn't remember that. I brought it to his attention like three years ago. And he was like, you waited this long to tell me? He's like, you couldn't even remember. I was like, um, so there was this moment and basically changed my life. And he was like, what even are you? Like, what is happening right now? But that happened. And not just that, but when I had that profound moment of revelation, I went home because I was just there for a visit, right? And as I'm struggling with trying to figure out like, do I stay? Do I go? Is this like a grass is greener on the other side? What's happening? A friend of mine who didn't really know anything beyond the fact that I had just gone to Canada to visit my friend comes up to me and says, hey, Chris, so in the last prayer session, I had like a, a vision of you, but I felt like I was supposed to share it when we were by ourselves. Like it felt private somehow. And I, I just wanted to share that I saw you, a picture of you and you were running outside and you were running in a field. And I just felt the joy of the Lord and the peace of the Lord upon you. And I felt I was supposed to tell you that you were running through an unending field of wheat. Does that mean anything to you? And I was just like, Bleh. She calls me Weetos to this day. Like we had this like crazy moment where she's like, what is happening? Ah. And so I would write these truths in my journal until like my pen was basically breaking through the page. And so I would do that and I would do something else. I would go running across the River Thames and I would blast worship in my music, in my ears, and I would scream sing along to it when it was the hardest thing to do. Why? Because I was holding on to a truth that I had experienced of what worship does to an atmosphere. And so when I was lost and I was confused and I was feeling isolated and I had literal carpet burns on my forehead from all of my hours spent weeping on the ground, I would worship. I would cling to the truth of what happens when I worship. Understanding that this is my battleground. 
equipping myself with a theology of worship so that even when I don't feel like it, I can see it for what it is, a tool of breakthrough. A tool of breakthrough that God has himself placed in my arsenal. It is a weapon of warfare, but it is also a pillar of identity that I can build on. And so I'm going to quote William Temple here. To worship, is to, to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. To feed the mind with the truth of God. To purge the imagination by the beauty of God. To open the heart to the love of God. And to devote the will to the purpose of God. That's what it means to worship. And so I'd like to unpack this a little today, if that's okay. We feeling good? All right. We're going to unpack a little worship theology that I hope will give you something to hold on to in those moments where it seems easier to do just about anything else but worship. And so we're going to get, like, really, if anyone's a note taker in the room, I just figured out that all of my points actually start with a P. So that's always fun when that happens. And so we're going to go through some P's, and then we're going to go through some, hey, how about we try this? So for every P, there's like a, maybe let's try this. How about this for an idea? And so the first P is pursuit. Worship is a pursuit. Because to worship is, and I'll read this, to experience reality, to touch life. It is to know, to feel, to experience the resurrected Christ in the midst of our gathered community. It is to allow ourselves to be invaded by the glory and the radiance of God as he dwells in the midst of his people. It is a pursuit. Because worship brings into focus the reality that we are not talking about a God who is distant. That's what it does. We are talking about a God who is present. He is not aloof. He is not abstract. He is a God who is present and active in his pursuit of us. Because guess what? We're not the ones pursuing. He's the one pursuing us. That's like a country song waiting to happen. It's actually God doing the pursuing. And worship is just our human response to this divine pursuit. So to put this another way, God is forever taking initiative with us. He's forever drawing close to us. And scripture is full of these beautiful descriptions of God's efforts to initiate, restore, and maintain relationship with his people. To draw us close and reveal his nature to us. So worship is our response to the overtures of love already being poured out over us. Because the truth is for every song we sing to him, he has already been singing a song over us. And so if worship is our response to who God is, the depth and impact of our worship is determined by a revelation of the God we are worshiping. We need to see who God is. This is just the biggest underlying point. We need to read about him in his word. We need to meditate on it. And we need to let Jesus Christ continue to reveal to us the nature of our king. So it's not about whether you know God or not. It's about how you know God. There are over 125 different descriptions of the nature of God in the Bible. 125. And so how do we know him? Like what revelation is driving us? And it's interesting because his character is so multifaceted. For example, he is defined as a refuge, but also as a fortress. He's He's defined as a refuge, which is the place you go to take shelter, to recover. But he is also defined as a fortress, the place you go to advance, to conduct warfare, right? He is both of these things. How are we knowing our God? And so here's my first, how about this for an idea? 
When you don't feel like worshiping, try reading your favorite scripture. And if you don't have one, I would recommend Ephesians 1 and the letter to the Philippians because they are just these crazy hymns of identity sung over us. Paul is just deeply aware of his true location in Christ in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing, no matter what his circumstance looks like. If you want, to look about, you want, if you want a story about worshiping God despite not feeling like it or despite your situation not matching up with that, just look no further than Paul. And the book of the, the first chapter of Philippians, actually, is considered to be one of the first two chapters, the oldest hymns in existence. And it is some of the richest theology of the nature of God you can find in the Bible. Mm, I, just, I could go on, but I will stop. We'll keep on going. To number two, worship is a priority on our time, or it needs to be. Because it's the cycle that happens, that when we put in time in that hidden place with God, we get a revelation of God's character, and that revelation of God's character draws us to respond in worship, which leads us to wanting to spend more time in His presence. And then we get another revelation, which leads us to worship. You see, it just this beautiful cycle. And it's not just a cycle, it's actually a biblical call. What I love is worship is actually defined as the expression of adoration. And the meaning of adoration is the deepest possible love. The deepest possible love. And the first commandment that Jesus gives us is what? Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So I think he meant the deepest possible love. Not just, now go and do some cool stuff in my name. Are you with me? Okay, awesome. Tell me if I'm something too foreign or going too fast, like flag me down, throw something at me. So the divine priority is worship first, service second. Because service flows out of worship and it shouldn't take its place. Look no further than Mary and Martha. Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him in adoration, and Martha tries to get Jesus to get Mary to help her in the kitchen. And Jesus is like, Martha, my girl, you missed it. You just missed the point a little bit. I'm not going to distract her from the most important thing. Because it's the sitting and the listening, is the time that's spent in our individual day-to-day stuff, trying to actually learn what his voice sounds like. That's, that's what leads to this special kind of anticipation. Because when we know what his voice sounds like, we can listen for it, right? And so then when we actually come together in worship, something crazy happens. Because that's what I actually want to get to. I want to head towards what happens when we worship together as a community. Because when you go through these moments in the Bible, picking out those scenes where people are described as being gathered in worship, you always see something that stands out in a really striking way. And that is that these people, these gatherings are always filled with a sense of holy expectancy. They come together in worship, expectant, believing that they would hear the voice of God and see Him move in their worship. They believe that they would experience him moving in their lives. And so when Moses enters the tent of meeting, the Israelites are just as aware as as he is that he's entering the presence of God. They line up beside their tents as he walks into the tent of meeting. 
the book of Acts is a description of an early church worshiping that is keenly aware of the fact that the veil has been torn. There's an expectation and anticipation of God moving in power. And this anticipation, try that again. This anticipation, there we go, is built on the time we spend by ourselves learning who our God is and being drawn to worship Him in response to that and Him then meeting us in those moments. So another practical, how about this for an idea? Don't be, don't, how can I put this? Start with an easy habit. Don't be afraid of the fact or put off by the fact that it's easy. I think sometimes when we try and kind of draw these lines in the sand in our life, we try and go for the like, epic, I'm going to do like the U version shred and read the entire Bible in 30 days. And because we're just like, because reading it slowly is like, no, I got to go big, aim big. And so we feel like small adjustments aren't good enough, but it's the small adjustments that lead to bigger habits, right? I'm not a person who makes drastic changes very easily. And it took a long time for me not to be ashamed of how small my habits needed to be to build up actual rhythms in my life. And so even if it's something small, like think of 10 songs that always get you to that place in worship. You know, there are always those songs and no matter when you hear, when, when it is, how it is, what time of year, like it could be from 20 years ago, but when you hear them, you're instantly taken to that place. Identify those 10 songs and put them in a playlist. And listen to them when you have the most time to yourself. Maybe you're commuting in your car. Maybe it's when you're changing diapers at a diaper table. Just put them on. Force yourself to press play when you're feeling stressed or busy. My favorite, busy. Do you ever feel guilty if somebody asks you how you are and you don't respond with busy? You feel like, oh, I should be busy. Why is my response not busy? No, no, no. Listen to those songs when you don't have the energy to create something yourself. It's okay. Write that list. Write that, that list of the, the God movements in your life. Write that list. Read that list. Write that list again. It's a muscle that needs exercising. Right? It's not, we're not going to wake up and it's like, aha, I am Arnold Schwarzenegger in the spiritual realm now. Like that, it's not going to happen. It's a muscle that needs exercising. It's an attentiveness that needs toning. Which brings me to number three. Worship is a practice, which means it's an activity that needs repeating. So don't be overwhelmed or discouraged by that process. It's truly just really baby steps taken in that quiet place. Every decision, every decision to hold onto that truth and lean in when it's the hardest thing to do is a brick in the structure of worship you're building into your life every single time. Every single time. Because guess what? Then Sunday rolls around. Hallelujah. Like, I love Sundays. Mm. Like, so many people at my church in, in Saskatoon are just sending me clips of worship, being like, the team is doing so good. And I feel like a dance mom. Like, you go, guys. You know, just do your thing. I love church. I love Sundays. And guess what? When Sunday rolls around, stuff happens. We read in Matthew 18, verse 20, for wherever two or three are gathered in honor of my name, I am right there with him. It's right there in his word. And so my other, hey, maybe this is a good idea. Let's get around each other. 
Our time of personal devotion is never meant to take the place of our corporate expressions of worship and faith. It's not one or the other, it's both. Because no matter how strong you think your discipline is, this is actually crucial to sustaining a habit and pattern of worship and prayer. No matter how strong we believe our personal devotional life is. Because we're not just gathered in the sense that we are in the same place, right? That's not what he's saying in that script. It's not just about like, oh, we're in the same place. We're gathered, right? There's something else that's going on. When we gather in this sense, we are actually uniting in purpose and the spirit. There's a union that's going on in the spiritual realm. It's something that actually transcends and goes beyond our individuality and changes us into the true meaning of a community family, right? And so I said this on Friday, but I'll say it again. At a fundamental level, you and I have been designed for this. We have been designed to exist in community. It is part of our DNA. We are made in the image of a God who is a triune being. Three persons, one God, living together in relationship at the center of the universe, right? This is the image we were made after. It's an image of community. It's, a, it's an image of relationship. So when we are truly gathered in worship, things occur that do not occur when I am alone. Number four, because worship is a pathway to connection. That holy expectancy... Expectancy of what, you might ask? Well, the thing we are expectant of is actually something that biblical writers gave a name to. And the name is koinonia. Try saying that 17 times fast. Koinonia. It is a deep, inward fellowship and companionship in the power of the Spirit. It's so physical that it actually has a name. Like something is happening on the spiritual realm when we gather together. Are you with me? This is good news. Because I have designed to exist in relationship. And so when God moves in worship, my expectation can be for more than me. Because the truth is God wants to talk to us. I know it sounds like so basic. And, but sometimes, do you feel like, why would God want to talk to me? Like I have those moments all the time. But it's the truth of the matter that he wants to talk to us. He wants us to know him. We've established that. And so when his spirit moves me, when I'm in this posture of worship, it's not just going to be about me. And I'm going to use an example I mentioned um, about on Friday, actually. And, you know, this is basically what I spoke about on Friday. So grab a lady after service. If you weren't here on Friday, be like, tell me more about these things called heavenly downloads. They'll take it from there, hopefully. But I just want to talk about Paul and Silas in the jail cell. Because they are stripped, they are beaten, they are locked in stocks in the innermost, darkest jail cell in the Philippian prison. And they start worshipping. And they're not worshipping with an agenda. They're just worshipping. And as they worship, an earthquake rolls through and breaks the chains off of them and opens the door of every cell. Not just their cell. Every cell of every prisoner in that house, right? It wasn't their intention to do so, but the byproduct of their worship was freedom for other people. Unintentional, maybe, we don't know. Unintentional freedom for other people. But then the interesting thing is, they see the guard, the prison guard, right? And he is terrified. 
He is terrified of seeing all of these prisoners. He is sure that this is the end of his life. He knows that he has a family at home. And he's just like, oh, this is it. This is where it ends. And then Paul does something incredible. His worship has just freed all of these prisoners physically. And then he directs his worship onto this prison guard. And it frees him spiritually. So he purposefully says, do not be afraid. Leads him in this atmosphere of worship. And this man comes to know God. And then takes Paul to his house. And his entire household comes to know Christ. Unintentional, but also conscious moments of worship. And so I just want to like take a, a minute here to just talk about Spontaneous worship. Because we have the opportunity in those moments where we're feeling something. You know, we're, we're, we're worshiping into freedom, for example. Or we're feeling like, oh my goodness, I'm just feeling a sense of anxiety right now that I know isn't mine. And so I'm going to worship through that. We have those spaces in that song, those songs where we lift up our voices and declare a prayer to our God. And we have the ability in those moments to vocally direct our worship. Does that make sense? So as we're worshiping, we don't know, chains could be breaking because of our worship all around in our sphere of influence. But then we also have the opportunity to make that direction, make that connection and actively direct our worship the way Paul did towards that prison guard. Because the truth is we're holding the keys to the kingdom and all the truths of the kingdom. And so we, got, we get to unlock those into our earthly reality. Because to God, every single moment of worship exchange is a transaction with heaven. It's a declaration of on earth as it is in heaven. So number five, the final P. That sounded better in my head. It's a portal into heaven. Worshiping in spirit and in truth is this whole process that we've gone through. This process that hits all of these different areas in our lives. And it establishes heaven atmosphere on earth. And what that does is it forces out anything that doesn't align with the truth of heaven from the atmosphere. It cannot exist in worship atmosphere. The enemy's assignments cannot exist in that space. So just think of it like a submarine. A submarine faces the external pressure of 30 atmospheres. The ocean weight is 30 atmospheres worth of pressure pressing against it. And yet because of the sub's design, a single atmosphere of a natural atmosphere inside is able to withstand it. This is your worship. Your worship creates an atmosphere inside you that's stronger than whatever surrounds you. 30 atmospheres of pressure can come at you, but the God you're focusing your eyes on, the God you're worshiping, who is unlocking the truth and power of who he is into your earthly reality, is stronger than any oppression you may face. You are fully able to exceed any level of oppression in your worship. Fully. And so I want to talk about Mary and Martha a little bit. And I'm, I'm winding to a close here, guys. We're going we're gonna to worship again in, some, in a little bit. But I just want to mention the story of Lazarus. Because Lazarus is sick. And Jesus arrives four days after the funeral. Lazarus is one of Jesus' closest, most beloved friends. And when he finds out that he is sick, Jesus continues to teach, doesn't speed up his journey, 
and arrives at Lazarus' house four days after. His sisters are mad. Martha and Mary are not pleased with this situation. Martha comes out to, to meet him, but Mary is so angry that she stays inside. Can you imagine? Just like, I don't even want to look at him. Have you ever just like, I just like, I don't even, I forget speaking to him. I don't even want to gaze upon his visage right now. Like, you know, no. They are broken hearted. She couldn't even bear to leave the house. And the Bible says that when she finally saw Jesus, she falls at his feet. But before Mary emerges from the house, Martha, she just barrels out. Like how unsurprising, like of the little we know of Martha, that she would be like, Jesus, I got something to say to you. We're going to have words right now, you and I. She is ready. And the first words out of Martha's mouth are, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She does not gild that lily. Lord, if you were here, my brother would not have died. She questions his very absence. And Jesus' reply is, Martha, your brother will rise again. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. He'll be resurrected on the last day, like you said, etc., etc." And Jesus replies, you may think you know, but you actually missed it. Because the resurrection isn't actually an event. It's a man. I am that man. I am eternal life. He says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Still shall he live. And so Mary's questioning words bring revelation in that moment. But then the scripture moves on to Mary. Mary, who has finally dragged herself out in pain, like brokenhearted, out of the house. And the Bible says that when she finally saw Jesus, she fell at his feet. He, she fell at his feet. And what's interesting is I was looking into what that would have meant. You know, sometimes we see like actions described in the Bible. And we look at them as we would look at them today. And we, if somebody, you know, like I don't often fall at somebody's feet, if I'll be honest. Like it, unless I'm like involuntary tripping over my own feet, in which case that does happen pretty often. Um, but here... Mary is doing something significant. Why? Because in those times, voluntarily falling at somebody's feet was the sign of ultimate reverence, veneration, and worship. So Mary is brokenhearted, but in that moment, when she actually sees Jesus, she chooses to worship. She chooses to fall at his feet in worship. And she says the exact same words that her sister did. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Her words are the same, but Jesus' response is different. His next words are, where have you laid him? Where have you laid him? See, their words were the same, but in response to Mary's worship, Jesus moves from deep empathy. We read that he cries several times. But at the sight of Mary's worship, he moves from deep empathy into what? Miraculous power. My questioning might get me revelation, but my worship is kindling on the fire of heavenly power. It is an awakening. It is an activation. It is a current of rebirth and renewal. Because worship establishes heaven atmosphere on earth. 
which establishes miracle power because in the presence of Jesus, nothing is impossible, right? So where does this kind of worship come from? It comes from stewarding the presence of the Lord. And why stewarding? Why the verb stewarding? Why do we read that in the Bible? Well, it's because steward actually means to host, to cherish, and to protect. And the underlining truth is you cannot steward something that you do not value. That's why we steward the presence of the Lord. It all starts with valuing it, valuing his presence. When you choose to worship, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what you feel like, what you're doing is this. You're reducing the options to one, his presence. You're saying in action, only your presence will do God. That's what the act of worship does. And so I'd like to close. And you can come on up. I'd like to close with with this example of this, of of a man who stewarded the presence of the Lord. Something I, I often mention when I talk about this calling to corporate musical worship is that it is not the same as musical gifting. And we confuse these two things really often. We think that, oh, for worship to be my thing, music has to be my thing, right? Where it's like, oh, I'll like miss the first couple of songs of worship on a Sunday. It's fine. Worship isn't really my thing. Like, People cringe when I sing next to them. And like something I always say is we may not be called to be the psalmists leading the charge, but we're all called to be the Israelites marching around the walls of Jericho, breaking down the walls with their battle cry of worship, right? It's not about musical gifting. But what's interesting is that that army marching around Jericho was being led by a man named Joshua. Who is Joshua? See, when Moses is entering the tent of meeting that I mentioned before, he wasn't going alone. Joshua, his attendant, was also there. And we read from Exodus 33.10, Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their own tent. And then verse 11, The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. How beautiful Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young attendant, Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave that tent. Joshua was a man who stewarded the presence of God. He made it, he gave it the value of his time. He made it a priority. He cherished it. And God used him to lead that army, breaking down the chains. And we are called to that same stewarding of his presence that same understanding of the power of worship to the point that he could direct that army on when to sing out he knew the power of his worship and so let's not cut it off at the knees let's not relegate worship to just an act of music or something to do when we're really in the zone let's just exercise that muscle And so we're going to do that today.